Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. I invite you this morning, if you would, to grab your Bibles or turn on your Bibles and find once again the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark. It goes Matthew and then Mark. All right, Matthew and then Mark. And uh, we're going to be actually in chapter 14. So we started out this morning in chapter 11. We're going to skip over a couple, of, uh, a couple of, of pages and a couple of chapters to verse or to chapter number 14. And that's where we're going to pick up our text this morning in just a minute. Like I said, at the opening of our service today, um, it is Palm Sunday. And a lot of people think of that and they think of the palm branches and they think, okay, it's like, it's like Easter Eve or something like that. It's just like the week before Easter. And so why is it so significant? And as I said, it's because it was kind of a, it was, it was really a, 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 a culmination of, of thousands of years of prophecy pointing to the fact that in case you had any doubt left in your mind who Jesus was, that this was the kind of like culminating point to see this is the savior of the world. This is the Messiah. This is the one to follow. And um, it's interesting that people loved him and they were praising him and they were, they were adulating him. And then just a few days later, the tone would shift, right? Because we know that as Passion Week begins, that word passion that we call it sometimes, it, it means the suffering of Christ because this was the high point of the last week of Jesus's ministry. The lowest point would come in a few more days when Jesus was on the cross. And then the highest of highest points of Jesus's ministry was when he would walk out of the tomb. And so all of this, it's just kind of like a roller coaster. For so, so, so for th- some of you who like real dramatic ups and downs in your stories, the story of the last week of Jesus's ministry is probably one of the most dramatic stories that you can find. It has emotional swings through it and everything too. It's amazing that these people that line the streets, giving up everything they could, turning this into an impromptu parade, just a few days later, there would be a crowd of people, whether it's the same crowd of people or whether it's a different crowd of people, after a night of false imprisonment and false trials being taken place, illegal trials actually taking place to Jesus Christ, just a few days later, they would be crying, crucify him. Today, we're going to move past the celebration of the day of of the day of Palm Sunday, and we're going to move several days, about four days, and a lot has changed in the four days where we pick up our text. So let me just kind of help set the stage for you before we get into the text that we're actually going to read this morning. It's only a matter of hours in this text before Jesus, instead of being praised by the entire city, would be arrested and would be hated. He'll be arrested because he will be betrayed by one of his 12 disciples, one of the people that are closest to him, having walked with him for three and a half years, seen the miracles, ate the food, ate the fish and the bread that came out of nowhere but God's blessing, watched him heal the sick, watched him save sinners, one of them would betray him. After his arrest, not only will he be betrayed by one, but the rest of them will all desert him as well in some way. He'll suffer the humiliation of multiple illegal trials and inquisitions. And though he is completely innocent, Jesus somehow will be condemned in these illegal trials. He'll be subjected to excruciating and painful scourging, the beating of the cat of nine tails. He'll endure the mocking of brutal Roman soldiers. He'll have a crown of four to five inch thorns forced down through his head, through his scalp and into his skull. 
Beaten, bloodied, and bruised, he'll be forced to carry a heavy cross through the streets of Jerusalem up a steep hill to Calvary while people mock him, threaten him, throw things at him, and spit on him. Eventually he'll fall in his humanity. He'll fall under the weight of that cross and someone from the crowd will have to carry it up to him but his job will not be done. The Romans will not be done. The Jewish leaders will not be done with the carnage. They want to see him hang on the cross and they want to see him draw his last breath. So when he gets to Calvary, he'll be stripped of his garments and nailed naked hands and feet to that cross and hoisted up on the cross to hang there, struggling to find the strength to rise to each breath. And eventually... He will forfeit his spirit and commend his spirit into the Father's hands. In less than 24 hours from the text that we read, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will be dead. So this is where we're going to pick up our text this morning in verse number 12. It says this, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and he told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him wherever he enters and tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He's going to show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. Now, these disciples are probably thinking, haven't we done this a few days ago? You told us to go find a, a donkey. And, and we went and this was the weirdest like, thing that you sent us on. And we found a donkey and we brought it over. And you said, just tell them that, you know, I need the donkey and they're going to do it. And so this time they're emboldened. They're like, oh yeah, we're going to go find that upper room, man. It's going to be ready for us. And it says in verse number 16, so the disciples went out, they entered the city and they found it just as Jesus had told them. Imagine Jesus told them something and he was correct, right? And they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, he arrived with the 12 and while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you are gonna betray me, the one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it's one of the 12. The one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me for the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to them, or woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him that he had not even been born. As they were eating, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and he drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And in verse number 27, then Jesus said to them, all of you, every one of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, Lord, I will not. Even if everyone falls away, Lord, I will not. Heavenly Father, have your will and way right now in our hearts and our lives. Speak to us from your word. We realize that this book, these words are sustenance for our spirit and for our soul. And so I pray this morning you would captivate us by that. And I pray as your messenger that I would die to self and I would not say anything, anything that would stand in the way of what you want to do today. In Jesus' blessed and holy name we pray. Amen. In less than four days, we go from Mark chapter 11, Hosanna, Lord save us now. And now we're at 24 hours before Passover. And in just a few more hours, we're going to hear people calling for his crucifixion, willing to watch him hang upon a cross and die. In less than 24 hours, Jesus will be dead and laying in a borrowed tomb. But before that, 
Before all that happens, 24-hour clock starts. Jesus is found at the table eating the Passover meal with his disciples, with the 12 of them who had been with him his whole life. This feast was not just his last supper. We call it the last supper many times, but it's not just his last meal, but it is the Passover feast, which was a feast that had been celebrated and observed for 2,000 plus years by, by, the, by the Jewish people because it was a commemoration of the time when the Jews were in slavery in Egypt and in bondage to Egypt, and God said, that's enough. There's no more bondage for my people. And so he sends Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And if you remember the story or if you remember the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? There's 10 plagues, right, that take place. That last plague when Pharaoh continually hardens his heart and says, no, I will not let my slaves go. I will build my empire on the back of your people. God says, you will not build your empire anymore on the back of my people. And so to get Pharaoh's attention one last time to let the people go, he sends what's called the death angel throughout all of Egypt. And that death angel comes and takes the life of every firstborn person, except for those who have placed the pure blood of a spotless lamb over their doorpost, who God told all of the slaves there in Egypt, put that over and the angel will pass over you. Henceforth, get the meal, the Passover feast. The foods that they ate during the Passover were actually symbols to remind the Jewish people of their enslavement in Egypt. They had applesauce, or it was really like ground up apples. And if you know what happens when you take an apple and grind it up and leave it sitting out, it kind of turns color and gets really mushy and everything like that. And it almost kind of gets slimy, but that applesauce was eaten to remind the Jewish people of the brick mortar that they were forced to make without straw when Pharaoh got really mad at them and said, all right, I want you to make mortar. And it was just soupy and it never would work. And they got more stripes on their back because they couldn't do the work without the stuff that they needed. The bitter herbs were then eaten next to remind them of the bitterness of their time of enslavement for hundreds of years. There were some other root vegetables that they ate that they were supposed to take those vegetables and dip them. And anybody, everybody loves dipping their vegetables, right? In what? Ranch dressing, baby. No, 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 ranch, no ranch dressing. No Hidden Valley at the Passover feast. It was salt water. They dipped it in that salt water and that bitter taste reminded them, reminded them of the tears that people shed while they were enslaved in their bondage and in their suffering. Then there was a roasted lamb which reminded them of the lambs that were killed that night to grant the life of their firstborn when they spread the blood over the door. And it was this meal that Jesus would have as his last and his final meal. I don't know about you, but at my final meal, I'm not asking for bitter herbs and rotten applesauce, right? I want some steak and lobster and stuff like that. Aren't you thankful for no more kosher diets, right? But this was the meal that Jesus would have his final meal and that's very significant. Then Jesus does something at that final meal in that upper room that changed everything and brought all of that to completion because that Passover feast, even though it was a remembrance of their suffering, it was also for the rest of us as Gentiles, a picture of us in our sin. And Jesus completes everything when he takes a loaf of unleavened bread from that Passover feast and he breaks it and he gives each disciple in the room a piece and he says, take and eat. And he says, this is my body. He takes that unleavened bread, which was a symbol of brokenness, and it was bruised, and that, that unleavened, that matzah bread had, you know, lumps and everything all over it. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. Then he takes a cup of juice or of wine, and he takes a drink, and he passes it to the others, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. All those things, those symbols that they had continually seen as symbols of something that was unfinished and incomplete 
Jesus now completed in him. And church, that teaches us something very important, that until Jesus died on that cross and rose from the dead, our path to glory, our path and God's plan for salvation and redemption was incomplete. But in Jesus Christ, it is complete. And Jesus Christ is complete. And that is when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, the brutality of the cross, but also the forgiveness that was brought for that. Because just as the Jewish people look at the Passover feast and they remember it was God who brought us out of that suffering, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world brings us out of the suffering of sin and out of the suffering of death. If and only if the blood of the great Passover lamb is applied not to the doorpost, but to the post of our heart, we will have redemption. Death and sin loses its grip and salvation takes over. And I often wonder sometimes what it must have been to have been at that upper room at that moment that Jesus takes the Passover feast and he completes it with the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Many of you are probably familiar with this famous painting, right? Can somebody help me out, you art history majors, when you see this come up? Can anybody tell me what painting this is? Seriously, it's written on the screen, guys. Okay, all right, it's the Last Supper. Can anybody tell me who the painter is? All right, we have two young ladies who just got back from Italy, and they've seen painting after painting after statue after statue. Leonardo da Vinci was one of the Renaissance painters from Italy at this time. They didn't actually get to see this, but they saw a copy of it in some of the cathedrals that they went to. But this is a well-known picture that in da Vinci's mind's eye, this is what it must have looked like. Now, obviously, we know that Jesus was not, uh, was not as Caucasian-looking as he looked there. Uh, he was, he's a Jewish guy, and most of these guys are Jewish, and so they're not as Caucasian. So I thought about putting like, the, like, a, like, a, like a brown filter over it or something like that, but then I would have been changing da Vinci's work of art, right? And so, but we know this picture. But what I was thinking is, who, if I was sitting around the table, what would I be thinking when Jesus stands up and he changes a sacred tradition of thousands of years? How would I respond to that? And then how would I respond when Jesus says, one of you in this room tonight is going to betray me? So as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper this Palm Sunday, I want to look closely at these 12 men who dined with Jesus during his last meal. Because in verse number 27, as the remaining 11 are headed out to the garden to pray, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, all of you are going to fall away. All of you are going to abandon me. All of you are going to betray me. I would hope, sitting at that table, that I wouldn't be Judas. I would hope that I would be somebody else. But the truth is that each one of these guys betrayed Jesus in some way, shape, or form. We look at, the, 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 we look at how Palm Sunday went from, I love you, Jesus, to four days later to, I hate you, Jesus. And even the ones that loved Jesus couldn't even be around him because they were more concerned for themselves. See, the Lord's Supper is to be a time of personal reflection and a time of personal cleansing. And Paul warned the church in Corinth, said, don't approach the table of Christ even if it is in the form of a lunchable. Don't approach the table of Christ with just apathy and just not thinking that it's any big deal or thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think because these elements remind us that without Jesus, we have no hope. Just as the Jews, when they sat down and ate the Passover feast, when they sat down, they realized that if it were not for the influence of God, they would still be in bondage today. So you may be thinking today, I've got this. I'm closer to Christ than I've ever been and I would never betray him. I would never walk away from him. I would never abandon him because that's what Peter says later on in verse number 29, right? A lot of us would be thinking when Jesus says, I'm gonna fall away, 
or, or when Jesus says, you're going to fall away, and Peter just says, <laughs> everybody else can fall away from you, but me, Peter, I am different. I'm like Iron Man, man. Nothing is going to happen to me. I'm going to stay true to you. Peter's like the first one that messes up, right? He cuts off a guy's ear and then he goes and he denies him. And then later on, he's like, you know, depressed and out in the fishing boat before Jesus actually kind of like restores him, right? Sometimes we have that attitude. I got this. Everything's fine. Everyone else may fall away, but I won't do that. We need to make sure that we understand that it's not about us because if it's all about our ability, we will all fall away. These 12 men that dined with Christ took the first communion as served Jesus, and they serve as character references for all of us. So this message is going to feel a little bit different than most messages that I preach. Most messages I preach, I just go verse by verse through the passage. Today, we're going to look at character studies of each one of these men and learn something from them today, because I think we can see a little bit of ourselves in each one of them today. But the beauty of this is, despite their failure, post-resurrection, what we see is how God uses them. The first one we, let's, let's look at is Peter, all right? So let's look at the guy who's like talking as much trash, talking more trash than anybody else, right? The one thing that we know about Peter, if you kind of study Peter, if you look at him throughout the gospels is Peter was a pretty impulsive kind of fella, okay? He was kind of one of those guys that you would look at him and say, this dude has no filter whatsoever. Anybody know a person who doesn't have a filter? Anybody sitting next to the person who doesn't have a filter and you're afraid to raise your hand because then they don't have a filter and you don't want to start a problem in church, right? Oftentimes, or you're the person that doesn't have a filter and you don't know anybody because it's you and you need to get a little bit more self-aware, all right? He frequently spoke too quickly without thinking. Sometimes he liked to show his sword off when he shouldn't have done it, like he cut off, he cut off Malchus's ear. He made promises that he couldn't keep. Hence, verse number 29, even though the whole world goes away from you, I, Peter, the rock, Petros, I will not abandon you. And when Jesus told the disciples that they'd all fall away in verse 27, Peter shoots back and says, not me, Bubba, you may be right about everybody else, but about Peter, you are wrong. You don't know how good you've got it with me because Peter is strong. Peter will pick himself up by the bootstraps. Peter is strong enough to endure no matter what comes your way. You have got a good one in Peter. Anybody ever been tempted to feel that way about their personal discipleship process? We get a little too heady, a little too high-minded. We look around at everybody else and think, what's wrong with these people? Why can't they just be like me? That's where Peter was. But Peter did fall away. And boy, when he fell, did he fall completely. Peter's the first one that had the details of his fall actually told to him. Because later on, Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, Peter, buddy, slow down. Because tonight, before the night is even out, you're going to deny me not once, not twice. You're going to deny me three times, Peter. Peter looks at Jesus like, man, you are crazy. You are nuts. But maybe you feel more like Peter than you want to admit. Maybe sometimes you make promises that you can't keep. You're well-intentioned, but you can't follow through. Maybe, and this has been a long, hard season for people through COVID, and it's been a long, hard se season for people who serve in church. People are, people are reporting in churches all over the place. It's hard to find volunteers. It's hard to find people. My prayer right now for Graceway is, as we come out of this, this time and we look to replant our replant again because of the timing of everything, God send us laborers. But here's the thing we have to make sure we understand. Don't make promises that are based in the flesh and in our own personal strength because if you do that, you are headed straight for burnout and for a fall. Our service to God is only going to be fueled by the Holy Spirit. We must depend upon Him. 
But maybe sometimes you make promises that you can't keep. Maybe you've promised yourself and everyone that you're going to stay close to Jesus and be the super Christian, that you're never going to let him down, but maybe you found yourself too falling away. Maybe you found yourself doubtful, found yourself questioning the goodness of God. Maybe there's been times when you've been afraid to admit that you're a Christian to somebody or you've been ashamed of your faith. You see, that's Peter in this scene. But the beautiful thing is after the resurrection, Peter's life changes. Peter goes from being a denier of Christ to being the one that speaks the message of Christ's resurrection for the first time on the day of Pentecost. He becomes the leader of the early church. Jesus himself commissioned Peter to go and feed God's sheep. He wrote two books of the Bible that we now find in our Bibles, First and Second Peter. And these books, what's interesting about First and Second Peter is they show a whole lot of humility from a man who had to learn humility the hard way. He had to learn important lessons for living the Christian life. So how do I apply Peter to my life? I guess the lesson that we learn here is that there are many times, or there may be times when we don't feel as proud to be identified with Christ as we should, but understand this, because of the undying love and because of the power of the gospel, Jesus always is proud to identify with us. We may fall from him. He never runs from us. He will never falter with us. He always has us in the palm of your hand. And you may be here, you may be watching right now saying, I'd like to see the proof of that in my life right now because right now it doesn't seem like Jesus is anywhere around. Trust him, he is there. The evidence is there. We may deny him, he will never deny us. So the question is, who do you have the potential to be leading towards Christ that you may be leading away from him because of an example in your life that denies his existence or that focuses too much on your own strength that Jesus isn't able to shine through? So that's Peter. The second ones that we see, we're going to couple these guys together because they're brothers from the same mother, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. And these are the other two guys in the inner circle. See, Jesus had his 12, but then he had Peter, James, and John who were kind of like, uh, I don't want to call it the advisory board. They were kind of like the elders within, within the, the 12. It was their mother who went to Jesus to ask, him, <laughs> to ask him something that they do that they wanted him to do. So instead of James and John going to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to tell us something, they sent their mommy to say, hey, my boys want to know a question right? James and John, as good as they are, and as much as they're used by God later on in scripture, they remind us of the pride and the ego that lies in all of us. The pride that can well up in us all. So what does Peter's, or what does James and John's mom ask me? In Matthew chapter 20, it says, the mother of Zebedee's sons approached Jesus with her sons, and she knelt down to ask him for something, and he says, what do you want? And she said, promise, Jesus, promise that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on the left in your kingdom. So here's what James and John wanted their mom to do. They wanted their mom to secure an advisory council position for them in Jesus's kingdom. Now that takes some pride and some arrogance, doesn't it? They may have thought, oh, we're going to be humbled by sending mom, but what they're really doing is being manipulative. You know, Jesus has got a, so a soft spot for moms. You know, he loves his mom a lot. So let's send mom over there and ask but really reveal their pride and their ego. And even on their last night together, on their last night together, disciples are arguing amongst themselves who's the greatest. They argue who's the greatest and who deserves the seat of honor at the table as Jesus' right hand man. This wasn't at the beginning of when they began to walk with Jesus. This is at the end. This is when Jesus is getting ready to go to heaven. And if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking, as much as I've tried to teach you people, 
that the kingdom is upside down and it's not about pride and arrogance and who's strongest. You're still, you're still, Peter, you're still holding on to your strength. James and John, you're still wanting your position. James and John both teach us that if we are to follow Christ, we have to first surrender our egos and our pride and our sense of self-importance and our sense of self-security. We have to realize that he's our greatest treasure. He's our greatest desire. And that's the question we have to wrestle with. Is he our greatest desire? Or is he just a part of our life, a piece of a life that we're trying to make great on our own? Or is he just a means to a better life in the end? Remember the words of Jesus when they asked who was his favorite. In Matthew 23, 11, he says, The greatest among you will be the one who is your servant. In God's eyes, the greatest in the room is often not the one who has the microphone. It's the one who is willing to serve. It's the one who's willing to give of themselves to serve. So if you have a problem with anger or ego, then maybe see yourself as either James or John. Take heart in this. The humility is found in the light of staring at the beauty of Christ. The Bible tells us that when we look at Christ long enough, he overwhelms us with that. And every time someone got a glimpse of God in the Bible, their reaction was the same is, I am nothing in comparison to him. And the fact that he would want me is probably the greatest it's the greatest treasure of my whole life. And we got to move quickly because we got to get through 12 of these, right? So Andrew, in contrast to James and John, we see meek and mild Andrew. You'll see him up there on the screen there. There he is. <clears throat> he's the best known for bringing his brother Simon Peter to Jesus. Even though he's the one to follow Christ first, Peter is the one who ends up getting more of the fame. Andrew, all we see of Andrew throughout the Bible is him just bringing people to Jesus. He brought his brother Simon, and then later on when Jesus performs the miracle of the 5,000, Andrew's the one who brought the little boy with the lunch to Jesus to be used. And when that happens, Jesus gets the credit for the miracle oftentimes when we preach about it. The boy gets the credit for being able to sacrifice his lunch, and we oftentimes don't talk much about Andrew. But Andrew is the one who went out, saw the need, found the boy, brought him to Christ. And he teaches us something important. That our life is not about people seeing us. Our life is about people seeing Jesus and bringing others to him. Teaches us where to follow Jesus. We can't insist on being the one who's in the limelight. He can't, we can't be the one who gets the credit. That it's enough to know the Lord and to be with him. You see, when we're truly in service to the Lord, we'll rarely get the recognition and the fame. See, there's, there's going to be times when we have to defer to others in humility for the sake of unity and for the sake of glory to Christ. And the question is, do you see yourself a little bit in Andrew? Because honestly, that can be a struggle for us, right? It's not easy sometimes to just take the, the second role or the servant role, wondering when you're going to get the credit, wondering when somebody's going to see what you're doing. It may feel like the whole world is overlooking you. It may feel like, oh man, this little old church, man, we never get a whole lot of credit. We never get a whole lot of press. But God says, I reward faithfulness and I reward a heart that is set upon me. See, he knows you inside and out and he wants to use you to write his story. And let me assure you this. Everyone may overlook you. But before you were even a thought in your mom and dad's mind, God knew you and he ordained you and he gifted you to use you for his glory. You are not overlooked and you are not unimportant. The best life is lived bringing others to Jesus. We see in Philip, speaking of bringing people to Jesus, Philip is also known for this. He's the one who brought uh, one of the other apostles, Nathaniel, to see Jesus. In verse 12 of the book of John, it says, Now some Greeks 
were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip the Seda in Galilee, and he requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Now, what does this tell us about Philip? Philip lived a life that was so identified in Christ that when people who weren't even of the Jewish tradition, who were outside of all of that, who were Gentiles, wanted to meet Jesus, they knew to come to Philip because he was replicating Christ so much in his life. So we don't know this for sure, but Philip, it's believed that Philip may have been the one who was kind of the uh, events coordinator or the caterer for the group of the disciples. We believe that he was the one who, who went and secured the upper room. We believe he was the one who went and secured the donkey. We know for sure that Jesus uh, basically looked at Philip and said, how are we gonna feed all these people when they didn't have any food at all? And Philip starts running the numbers and he's like, dude, it's gonna be impossible to do this. Philip answered him. He said, it's gonna take like 200 denarii worth of bread and it wouldn't be enough for each of them to even have a little bit, Jesus. See, some, common, some commentators say that that statement right there revealed a lack of faith in Philip's heart. And it probably was, looking at the odds stacked against Christ. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever faced a moment or faced something in your life where you looked at it and said, I know all things are possible through Jesus. I just don't see how this one is. Sometimes we look at the Bible and we think, yeah, I know the Bible says all things are possible, but it's 2022. And maybe the Bible didn't know about all the things that we're facing today. But remember, the God who wrote this Bible doesn't live in the past or the present or the future. He lives in all of it. He knows it all. Has there been a time when you faced a difficult situation, you looked at it and you thought, I just don't know if the resources are at my disposal. I don't know, God, if you can even tap into the resources yet. So in Philip, we see that it's always the safe bet to trust Christ even when the odds are stacked highly against it. He also reminds us that we should always be looking to bring and looking for opportunities to bring people to Christ. And the beautiful thing about Philip is after the resurrection, Philip would be the one who runs to the Ethiopian eunuch, if you remember that story. And he shares Christ with him. And he would also be the one who said, I'm going to set up shop and I'm going to start a ministry in Samaria in a place where nobody wanted to be around those people. He said, I'm going to start a church and I'm going to set up shop in Samaria. Maybe there's some Philip in you. Maybe you think the odds are not stacked in your favor and you think it's impossible, but through the power of the resurrection, God turns everything into possible in him. Then we see Thomas and we come to one of the disciples that always seem to get negative press, right? Not, nothing, not hard to find negative things about Thomas, right? What do we know Thomas as? Doubting Thomas, right? Thomas doubted everything, right? The thing about Thomas is he's probably, I, I, I probably find a lot of myself in Thomas. He's a very analytical guy. Like he likes to have his, his ducks in a row. He, I mean, he probably, he, had, he probably had a daytimer before daytimers were even a thing. He liked to know his schedule, his outlook, never had a, 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 an appointment that, that conflicted with another one. He probably always traveled with a compass or an atlas in his pocket. You would never find him wearing a t-shirt that says, all who wander are not lost. All right, Thomas wanted to know everything ahead of time. And in John 14, Jesus starts telling his disciples, he says, look, I'm going to die and I'm going to leave you soon. And when I go, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to go and I'm going to build you mansions in heaven. And when I finish, I'm going to come back. But you don't know when that's going to be. And Thomas pipes up and he says, Lord, if you don't leave us like a bread, a bread trail, how do we know where to find you? Thomas already starts his doubting saying, Lord, I need more info to follow. I need a little bit more proof for my faith. Jesus looks at Thomas and he says, 
He says, Thomas, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He says, you keep your eyes on me, you follow me, you trust me, and all of those promises that I have made to you will come to pass. You see, the promise is not in the details, the promise is in the one who made the promise and has the power to fulfill the promise. Thomas had some trouble. And then after the resurrection, he has another problem, right? All the disciples are together in this like safe house behind locked doors because they're fearful for their life and the resurrected Jesus all of a sudden just appears in their presence. He didn't pick a lock. He didn't use a secret knock or anything like that. He's just in their presence in his resurrected form and he proves to them that he's alive. But Thomas wasn't there that day. So obviously all the disciples are telling him, look, Jesus is alive. We saw it. We saw the nails and we saw the nail marks in his hands and in his feet and we saw him. And Thomas is like, unless I see it for myself, I can't believe. So later on, there's another scene where Jesus shows up again to his disciples and Thomas is finally there. And Jesus looks at Thomas and he's like, hey man. And you know, Thomas can like see through his hand because he's got that nail. He says, Thomas, do you need to come over here and put your hands in, my, in the holes in my hands and in my feet? Do you need to touch me? Do you, what do you need to do? And Thomas says, no, it's enough. He says, I now believe. And then later on in that passage, he says something that is incredibly important for all of us. He says, Lord, I believe, but I need you to help what unbelief remains in me. Look, none of us have arrived in our faith. Trusting Christ for our eternity is the beginning point, but none of us have arrived in our faith. We believe but we must also have help for our unbelief. There are times when we look at God and we look at things around and say, God, I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know if I can trust you here. This is when we pray that prayer of Thomas, Lord, help my unbelief. What Thomas teaches us is that resurrection faith is not something that can be seen or touched. That to follow Christ, we have to embrace what he said. Lord, help my unbelief. And the beautiful thing is, God will never Never leave us in, 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 in not knowing. In his time, he gives us the answer. He helps our faith. Then we see Nathaniel. Sometimes he's called Bartholomew, which is definitely not short for Nathaniel. I don't know what happened. Maybe he was at Starbucks and they said, what's your name? And they said, Nathaniel. And they, they heard Bartholomew and called out the wrong number. I don't know what it was. But Nathaniel isn't mentioned much in scripture. But the one time he is, he comes across as a real prejudiced kind of guy. Over in John chapter 1, when Nathanael was first told about Jesus by Philip, he says, he says, come on, Philip, we know that nothing good can come out of Nazareth. He's like, oh, I'm waiting for the Messiah. I'm all in that the Messiah might be here, but it's definitely not a dude from Nazareth. It's kind of like looking at, a, looking at the, the city of Louisville and say, can anything good come out of Louisville, especially not cardinals? I mean, come on, right? He had this prejudice, right? There was a lot of prejudice in Jewish society and especially from those who came from a little bit upper class type of people. They looked down on the people from Nazareth and said, man, those people are so poor and so broke and so they, they're thieves and all kinds of things and we don't like them. We don't think anything good can come out of there, much less the Messiah. Can, sometimes we have those prejudices, don't we? Can anything good come out of that part of town? We may even say that. Can anything good come out of a prison once they've been there? Can anything good come out of that family? Can anything good come out of that political party? Can anything good come out of that group of people? See, Nathaniel reminds us that before we follow Christ, or as we follow Christ, we need to be free of the prejudices that separate us from others. Because if there's one person that can look down and say, can anything good come out of, it's God. It's Jesus. 
And God looked at Jesus and says, I need you to be part of my redemption plan. And Jesus could have looked down and said, can anything good come out of this broken humanity? They've turned their back on you at every turn. Can anything good come out of that? God looked at Jesus and says, no, but we're going to send our good into it. And we're going to restore them through our goodness. Nathaniel reminds us that we have to be free of those prejudices that separate us from others and look more with the eyes of Christ rather than the eyes of fear, the eyes of comparison. And what if Christ had shown prejudice against us? Like I said, the Bible says that God's not a respecter of persons. And we have to seek to have the heart of Christ in us. So ask yourself this, do I harbor some resentment? Do I harbor some prejudice? Do I harbor some skepticism towards people? And maybe rightly so. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been damaged. Maybe you have pain that you're carrying with you. We must look with the eyes of understanding that God is not a respecter of persons and all of us are in the same boat. We need Jesus. And if it is not for the grace of God, we are hopeless. Lumping people together into classes and groups thinking that they're all the same because they share a common trait denies the imago Dei, the image of God in each individual person. Looking at a person saying, well, he's this or he's that or she's this or she's that and they're all the same. I already know what they're all about. That denies the very image of God in that individual person. Matthew. You gotta love Matthew, right? Matthew is a, is a turnaround testimony. Matthew had been a tax collector. He worked with the Romans. His job was collecting Roman taxes from his own people. The money that he collected would, would then go to support the government that had run into their city and took it over and were holding them in oppression. So how could a Jewish guy born in, in an area where Jewish people lived turn like that, become a government man like that? Because Matthew's God was money. Matthew was willing to deny and be denied and suffer the abandonment of his people and his country and his family, but his money is what kept him company. He thought that he was fulfilled until Jesus stepped in and he saw, man, I don't have what I need. Matthew reminds us just how far we are willing to go and advance our own personal ambition and to build our own kingdom and our own empire. That we depend on a lot of things other than God to make this life seem good and make this life seem worthwhile. He shows us what an, a sinful desire for more and more and more can do. See, maybe you don't think that you have much time for Christ and for his church and spiritual things because you're too busy earning more or building your empire or making more and doing more. And Sundays, man, that's just the day I got to catch up. That's just the day I got to sleep or I got to do this. I gotta, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta chase after more to provide all the things that I think that me and my family need. Maybe you've earned money by doing things in dishonest ways or by selling things that are not Christ-honoring. Or maybe you're getting ahead or staying afloat by holding back from God what actually belongs to him. See, it's not gonna lead anywhere good. It didn't lead anywhere good for Matthew. That's why Matthew was so willing to get up and leave that table when Jesus called. So Matthew came to Jesus, he came all the way. Notice it didn't say that he just closed up shop for a little while. It says he left the tables, meaning he left, no notice, no call, no show. He's done to follow Jesus. He left it all. It's believed that Matthew is considered to be, the, the, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is considered to be one of the most detailed recordings of the gospel. 
Because to be a tax collector, you had to be a very detailed kind of person, right? To keep all the accounts and the ledgers right and to count all the money and make sure everything was good. Matthew was a detailed kind of guy. And Matthew's gospel is probably one of the more detailed because it's believed that Matthew actually recorded everything as he walked with Christ. Where John and where Mark recorded things later on by their memory. Matthew teaches us this. That God gives wonderful abilities. God gives us wonderful abilities to be used for him, but we can choose it to use for the wrong reasons. Matthew used that detailed mind, but he used it for his own good. And it poisoned everybody around him. But the minute that he changed that, that detail to begin to glorify Christ, there's things that change the world. The book of Matthew contains the Sermon on the Mount, the very words of Jesus verbatim, the manuscript of his sermon where he lays out the Beatitudes, where he lays out all of these important things that we still follow and believe today. And for me personally, that's important because it's the Sermon on the Mount, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount several years ago, that completely opened my eyes to what walking with Christ really looks like. Matthew is, is a testimony of the fact that God has designed us with specific abilities that we can use for God's glory or we can waste it on our own pursuits. Which one do we want to do? Then we see James, the son of Alphaeus. He's usually known as James the Less. Isn't that nice? I'm James. Well, we got another James, so we're just going to call you little James. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. That's just mean, right? James is only mentioned four times in Scripture, and he's only, list, he's only listed in a roster or a roll call of disciples. But history gives us evidence that James may have been a first cousin of Jesus, and he may have been one who was crucified in Egypt where he was preaching the gospel after Christ resurrected. So what do we take from James the Less? There's not a whole lot that we can do. Here's what I would say about James the Less. Every time the disciples are mentioned, he's mentioned as being present. So here's what we learn from James the Less. Faithfulness is defined by the ability to just show up. To just show up. Sometimes there's a lot of pressure to just call in and just not be there. But James, James the Less is one of those that he's there, that you can count on that he is there. Are you there for others? Are you there? Simon the Zealot. This is not the same as Simon Peter. Simon was this guy who was like addicted to outrage. Okay, so if he has social media, he's definitely a troll or he's always being put in Facebook jail because he's just constantly like mad at somebody or he's got a conspiracy theory about something. He hated the Romans and he belonged to this group called the Zealots who were basically like a terrorist group that was looking to overthrow the Roman government. And we may think, okay, well, we did that. We declared independence from Britain and things, but... But the way the zealots were going about it was through assassination and through lying and through all these things that were not going to get them the way that they needed to go according to the word of God. The, ze the zealots would rob, they would steal, they would kill, they would lie, they would bear false witness, they would do anything that they could to just because they believed that the ends justified the means. As long as the Romans were defeated, it didn't matter what you did to make it happen. Now I wonder sometimes how that first meeting between Simon the zealot and Matthew, the guy who sold out to the Roman government went. You know, Jesus is like, hey guys, this is our team. Everybody go ahead and tell us what will you do. I'm Matthew. I was a tax collector and Simon's over there going, what? You were what? You want me to live with this guy? Don't tell me Democrats and Republicans can't get along in church. Anyway, Simon reminds us this, is if we are to follow Jesus, we have to look at this whole message, even the ones that we may not agree with, that we have to follow him. Look at what the word says, to love your enemy, to pray for those who persecute you. And is that the life that we live? Do we have to turn away from hatred and do we have to turn away from anger toward the love of Christ like Simon? 
Maybe you get all turned up about like political drama or maybe you get all turned up about sports where you like literally hate the, your rivals. We're a lot more like Simon than we want to admit sometimes. We can get addicted to that outrage. We can just always be looking for something to be mad at. Or we're always looking at something that we've got to just like, you know, fight against all of these things that are going on. There's one thing to be righteously indignant, but it's another thing to be sinfully angry. And the difference is where our eyes are fixed. It's one thing to be angry at sin. It's another thing to be sinfully angry. Thaddeus. I know I'm trying to move quick. In the Bible's different listing of the 12 disciples, he's called Thaddeus, he's called Labius, and he's also called Judas, in parentheses, not Iscariot, in John chapter 14. In that verse, he asked Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 22, he says, Lord, how is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Meaning he's like, look, the 12 of us, we know who you are, but everybody else is still struggling with who you are. Why don't you just like, you know, put on some huge display and show everybody how amazing you really are? That's the only mention of Thaddeus. Thaddeus is a guy who just says, I just want rock solid proof. If you just give everybody proof, everything is gonna be great. He spent three years with Christ and this is it. He teaches us that you have to fully trust God's ways. Are there ways that I wish God would work that he often doesn't? Absolutely. But we have to fully trust the ways that God goes. Even when they may not make total sense to us, we have to trust what God is doing. And that might describe you. Maybe you're hung up at a season in your life where you're just wrestling with God because you think that he should be doing something different than what he's doing. Maybe your questions, you have questions and you can't reason out your faith enough. There's going to come a day that all the answers are going to be made known. We're going to know everything just like God. And we're all going to go, oh, I see what you are doing. But for all of us who have that Thaddeus in us that's like, God, why don't you do it now? We have to learn to wait and to trust him even when we don't understand. And then lastly, we're going to close out. We couldn't leave Judas out of the mix, right? There's Judas. And I'm going to say this. If we don't see Judas in ourselves, it's because we just don't look close enough. We don't want to think that we see Judas in ourselves, but we do. See, Judas's problem was he became impatient with Jesus. He also disagreed with some of the things that Jesus did. In Mark 14, Judas was one of the ones who were so angry with Jesus that he allowed the woman to anoint him with expensive uh, spikenard. Remember that? When the woman comes in to anoint Jesus' feet and she breaks this perfume that's worth like a year's wages, Judas is like incensed. He's like, that money could have gone for something else for the kingdom. And he's basically, what he's saying to Jesus is, I don't agree with the way you're running your ministry and I don't agree with the way you're doing things. Because what, why did Jesus, or why did Judas follow Jesus? Judas followed Jesus for the reason that many of them did. Many of the disciples, that, many of the followers that actually kind of went away. Judas followed Jesus for the reason that a lot of us do too. Because Jesus is a means to an end for us. For Judas, he was looking for someone to be the Messiah and to be someone who would restore Israel and take away all the oppression. He was looking for someone who would get them free of Rome. But Jesus was coming to free us from sin. And so Jesus didn't deal a whole lot with Roman oppression. And then, early, and then later on, Judas starts hearing Jesus say that he want, he's going to be crucified. And, and, and to, to Judas, it looks like defeat to say, you're going to let the Romans crucify you. I thought you were coming to set us free. And Judas looks at Jesus and he's like, this isn't the means to an end. This isn't what I signed on for. And so Judas decides that he's going to put Jesus in a place where he forces his hand. He's going to betray him. He's going to send the Roman authorities to him. And then, and then Judas is thinking, Jesus 
is going to show off. And when Jesus doesn't, Judas is like, man, what have I done? And he regrets what he did. But the problem that Judas had and the lesson that we learn from Judas, and this is where many times we're more Judas than we think, is that we oftentimes make Jesus just a means to an end rather than being our everything. So we don't come to Jesus just because of what he'll do for us. We come to Jesus because he is our everything. Jesus is worth following because of who he is, not simply because of what we want him to do. Does Jesus do a lot for us? Absolutely. Forgives us of our sins, gives us a home in heaven, walks with us, talks with us. But the beautiful part of Jesus is who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the Hosanna, the Lord who saves now. As we close out this morning, I just ask you to, to, to think about this. These guys that are sitting up here, how much of these guys are we like them? Who do you identify with the most? What is it that we can learn the most from this? We may be sincere like these guys in our desire to follow Jesus. We know all of these, these guys, but Judas were redeemed for their failures later on. And all but John die a martyr's death for following Christ because they would not deny their faith later. This is the beautiful part of the gospel. Jesus says, all of you will deny me and fall away from me at some point. But then after Jesus resurrected, he redeems them back to work with him and for him. So where you are right now, you may be on the edge of falling away or you may have feel like, man, I am wandered so far. This is the beautiful thing about Christ because of the power of the resurrection, he restores us. He restores us. Maybe you're here and you need to be restored. Say, man, I believe Jesus. I've been saved, but man, it's just been cold lately. And I need to come back to him and rededicate my life. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your savior. Come to him today. Whatever need you may have, Jesus will meet you at the point of need. Because at the center of that table is a man that we would not be able to finish talking about in one sermon. Jesus Christ, at the center of that table was their redemption. All around that table were guys full of failure, full of flaws. But at the center of that table is a man who could redeem and restore them for his glory. The focus must be on him. When we take our eyes off of him, things get, things get hairy. So as we get ready to take communion this morning. And I know our service has gone a little bit long today, but we've gone through Palm Sunday and on into Good Friday a little bit today. This is a time of reflection and closing out. If you need to come today, there's sins that maybe you need to repent of. There's things that you've just got heavy on your heart. This is a time of cleansing and thinking about what is it about these guys that I kind of manifest in myself that I just need to give back to God. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.